completely could see the screaming ritual. There was a mound, a tall, steep hillock, and on its sides were scattered people in robes, with hoods that hid their faces. Their arms were stiff at their sides. Their mouths could be seen when they opened them to scream. Before them stood a figure in a robe. He had some kind of tablet, a mystical tablet, lying before him and he pointed to it by the light of the burning skidoo. Each time he pointed to a different square on the tablet, someone new shrieked. It seemed like an alien kind of singing. Then the keening master would raise his hand and pour more oil on the fire from a watering can. The fire would flare. Milton squinted at the tablet. Now he saw that it was actually a game, a board game with spaces to move pieces and spots to put stacks of cards. It was open on an old formica-topped kitchen table. The table's legs were rusted. The conductor touched spaces on the board. The eerie choir cried. Milton watched them, their voices intertwined. Some shrieked one note, some gasped, others wailed strange sighs. From behind the mound, from out of the shadows, several more figures came. They carried the limp figure of a woman. Her head rolled back. Her hair hung down limply. She is finished, said one of the men who carried her. Indeed, said the conductor with the game. Milton Deatley's heart beat in panic. The group with the woman moved toward the fire. And Milton turned to run. He pushed aside branches and jumped toward the path. He heard a scuffling behind him. He was on the path now, barreling as quickly as he could go toward the road. His chest felt giddy and queasy. Twigs slapped at his face. A small man was standing on a stump, saying to him, Now things will not go well for you. He found himself in a maze of mounds. He scrambled from gully to gully. He clawed at the needles and loam and catapulted over rises. He slid down knolls. He could not hear if anyone pursued him. He broke out into open woodland. There were lights floating through the trees, perhaps insects. Deatly kicked up leaves as he ran. He kept thinking, this is no joke. Deatly paused in the midst of the wood. He was on a slope. He realized he was running up the mountain, not down toward the road. The bonfire lay between him and his SUV. He was trapped. As he stood there and pondered this, he heard hunting horns. Someone was coming down the mountain. Someone with many legs. Horses. Riders. Weapons. Things made of metal. They were all around him. He fell on his knees. And still, from the forest, they came in droves. Part One One The envelope was outlined in gold leaf and addressed in Gothic script. Nothing else that came in the mail that day was of particular interest. Bills with plastic windows, three unwanted record club selections, catalogs selling button-down Oxford shirts for men in colors like yucca, furs, and jungle burgundy, 
There was considerable curiosity about the Gothic letter by the time Gregory Buchanan ripped it open. Later that day, he showed it to his friend Brian. They were having burgers. Look what I got. What is it? asked Brian. Invitation, said Gregory. His mouth was full. From my Uncle Max up in Vermont. Why all the gold lettering? He's strange, Uncle Max. Gregory shook his head. Probably insane. He lives in kind of a different world from the rest of us, you know? The kind of world where electricity is a lot of invisible spiders. The kind of world where there's organ music that gets louder when he eats refined sugar. Brian smiled and nodded. So, said Gregory, I'm supposed to go up to his place in Vermont for a while, to visit him and my cousin Prudence. Gregory squelched some ketchup onto his plate. The letter says I have to bring a companion. Gregory opened up the note. Well, it says, a companion for your amusement so long as he be of solid reputation and respectful and unspotted demeanor. Gregory handed the note to Brian. He explained, You're the only one of my friends who's house-trained. Brian, pudgy and dark-haired, looked at the letter through his glasses. He read, half-muttering, To enjoy the salutary effects of the bucolic landscape and air untrammeled by the effluence and insalubrities of the urban crush. You're the smart one, said Gregory. Can you translate? I think it means that the countryside is healthy and the city is dirty. Does he always talk like this? I don't know. I only met him once. I'd, said Brian, shrugging. I'd like to go. I'm inviting you. You don't need to be timid. I'd like to. I'm warning you he's strange. It will, I guess, it will be an adventure. Oh, sure. It'll be weird. Very weird. Brian smiled. I don't want to miss it. No, so that's that. Okay, said Brian. Okay, now I'm going to order another Fanta. Things were hiding in the bushes by the dingy lights of rural Haltenbys, traveling on their strange and lonely pilgrimages. Things had issued invitations. Gregory Buchanan and Brian Thatz had been best friends for many of their 13 years. No one could figure out why or how. The differences between the two were obvious at first glance. Gregory was slim and fair-haired, with a smirk that suggested his flippancy and wit. Brian was stockier, with wire-framed glasses and dark hair, and a quiet frown that suggested he was the more thoughtful and pensive of the two. Gregory was popular, even though, or perhaps because, almost nothing he said made sense. Brian made a lot of sense, but hardly anyone but Gregory ever heard what he had to say. Others didn't see how they got along. Gregory said it was like they were two lobes of the same brain. When they were in groups, at school or out with the rest of their friends, Gregory kept up a steady flow of talk. Brian hung back shyly, but he often saw things no one else saw. They were inseparable. It was assumed they would spend their school's October vacation together. Very soon, they had made arrangements with their parents to travel by train up to Gerenford, Vermont, where they would be picked up by Uncle Max for two weeks' stay in the Green Mountains. Mrs. Thatz, Brian's mother, 
could only comment that, at this time of year, the view will be lovely. You'll be there for the changing leaves. She then lapsed into autumnal rapture about oranges and reds and fading yellows, while Mr. Thatz passed out more mashed potatoes. So three weeks after the letter arrived, the two were standing in North Station in Boston, waiting for the 847 train. The sun was particularly bright that day as the two squinted down the tracks, standing by their overstuffed suitcases. Brian examined the various stickers on Gregory's suitcase. He asked, Hey, you've never been to Algiers, have you? Or Sri Lanka? Or Salzburg? No, said Gregory. Actually, this is my cousin Prudence's. You'll meet her up at Uncle Max's. She lives there and takes care of things for him. Whose side of your family are they on? Uncle Max isn't on either side, Gregory explained. He's not related. Prudence's parents, my aunt and uncle, died when she was 17 or so. Uncle Max was a good friend of my real uncle. After her parents died, Prudence went to live with him. Before that, though, she traveled all over the world. Is she nice? I guess so. I like her, but she's very boring. She doesn't really make jokes. That's one thing you'll notice about her. Really nice, and has the sense of humor of a brick. But you'll meet her. Brian nodded, scuffled his sneaker on the concrete, then peered down the track. The 847 arrived at 9.23. With a hiss and a screech, the train slowed to a halt and shot its doors open. The acrid smell of burning rubber and oily steel drifted through the air. There was quite a large crowd waiting to get on. Seating was tight in the train cars. Finally, they found two seats facing each other and heaved their luggage up on the...